0: Uh, please take your copy of God's Word, turn to Hosea chapter 2, uh, as we uh, now, I guess, three Sundays into our uh, series in the book of Hosea. Um, it is, uh, as most of you are aware, it's our practice to uh, preach through books of the Bible uh, context by context, complete thought by complete thought, if you will, um, and so this morning we come to chapter 2 of Hosea. Uh, if you're using one of the pew chair Bibles, it's page 751. Uh, I'll begin, I will, I'll read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1, although we'll focus primarily on beginning in verse 2. Chapter Verse 1 was, was last week. Uh, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst upon her children. Also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom for their mother has played the whore and she who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall, she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the bales, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord Therefore behold I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her and there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of achor a door of hope and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time as at the time when she came out of the land of egypt and in that day declares the Lord you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my bail for I will remove the names of the bails from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, that you would be at work in and through and by this word. Use it to strengthen our faith Uh, to equip your saints to help us to understand your word, but more importantly, to know your love for us and to respond in love to that love. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, You know how the U.S. court system works. Um, There's a whole uh, process, a proper order, a proper way. Uh, process to, to go through in a trial. Uh, certain people have certain rights at certain times. There's an order and a pattern. Uh, the prosecutor goes first um, to give the defendant a chance to answer all the charges, all the problems, all the the accusations that are brought against them. And that is in essence what we have in chapter two. Uh, It's not exactly a courtroom, but it reads like a trial. It reads like a a courtroom proceeding. Charges being brought against Israel. um, uh, An accuser and and a prosecuting attorney and a defendant. And all of these things are present in Hosea 2. But if in a court case, if you know you're guilty, And you know you have absolutely no defense. I mean, you literally, I know I've done it. Everyone knows I've done it. I'm guilty and and I have absolutely nothing to say in my defense. You know you're guilty of the crimes that you're being charged with. What do you do? What, What do you say? How do you respond when you have absolutely nothing to say, because the reality is that's where Gomer finds herself. Gomer, Hosea's wife, who, by the way, is simply a picture of the people of Israel. And in fact, you, you notice that the name Gomer only actually comes up a, a couple of times, a handful of times in the whole book. It's not really about Hosea and Gomer. It's about Israel about God's bride, his people. And so it's in that context that Israel now is taken into court and um, face God as her accuser. For that matter, we too are guilty. We too are on trial. We too are guilty of, of cosmic treason, of of breaking God's law, of violating his commandments. What then? First I want you to see the charges reviewed against Israel. You ever you ever had those those times when um, perhaps a uh, your spouse or a child it may be worse when a child does it. And rattles off a list of things that you've done wrong to them. Um, that's sort of the setting here. There's this this urge. Plead with your mother. Plead. It's, it's more like rebuke. There's this call uh, to bring charges against Israel. And we're told in verse 2, it's because she's guilty of adultery. Israel's guilty and has rejected her husband. She's rejected God. She's turned after false gods. You go read I think I mentioned this last week. Um and certainly the the men in our Wednesday night Bible study um last semester were literally right in this section of 2nd Kings, but there's this whole long history of Israel giving herself to Baal to idols to the gods of the nations around them of rejecting the one who brought her out of Egypt delivered her from bondage and and set her down in the promised land she's guilty of spiritual adultery she's eagerly giving herself to the the gods of uh, the the false gods, the idols of of those around her, rejecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and that language you find in verses like four through seven. N- notice the the verbs that describe her actions. Look in verse five. She said, "I will go after. I will pursue." Verse seven. I will. She will seek verse seven there's this there's this sense of purposeful intentionality in her rebellion she doesn't simply fall into sin that 's the language we like to use right Well, I just fell into sin. Well, the description here is she is literally pursuing, chasing, seeking, going after these idols, these false gods. She's guilty of, of pursuing idols. But, but it actually kind of gets worse because notice what happens in verse 8. Not only is she pursuing them, but then when God lavishes on her these gifts, she actually instead says, thank you, Baal. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from God. And, and we understand how common grace works, right? Matthew 5 tells us that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? It's not just Christians' gardens who grow and non-Christians' gardens don't grow, right? Like that's not how that works. But the the point here isn't so much on the rain or the gifts or the the gifts themselves, but it's the one who gives them. And so there's this picture then that, ladies, your husband brings you a, a Tiffany necklace, ring, I don't know, whatever, bracelet, something fancy. And you ooh and ah over it. And send a thank you text from some, to some random guy at work. Thank you for this lovely gift. I mean, it's, it sounds ludicrous when we say it that way. Like, it sounds like who would do such a thing? It sounds completely foreign when we write it like that. Or when we say it that way. But that's what Israel's guilty of. God gives her rain and silver and gold and grain and wine and oil and she sends a thank you text to Baal. Thank you for these wonderful things that you have given to me. It's it's not really just a slap in the face. It's more like a spit in the face. It's that kind of response. And so she's she's pursuing... Intentionally, purposefully, after rebellion against, against God. We would never, right? I mean, surely we're, I mean, that's Israel, right? That's, that's those people, right? That has nothing to do with me, except for the fact that we have the money to pay our utility bills. And we pat ourselves on the back. We, we have the, a, a house and clothes to keep us warm and dry in the winter and, and in the rain. And we talk about how great and wonderful we are and how, how great our work is and how our work has provided for us and how I have grabbed my bootstraps and pulled really hard and picked myself up and look what I've done for me. We're guilty. We're we're just as guilty. Okay, it's not a statue, probably, right? It's not some gold, whatever, bail, but it's something. What are those things that, if someone came along and took it from you, that you would just get furious? Angry, I can't live without whatever goes in that blank might be your bail. It might be that idol that we are pursuing that we're chasing after, and so we see in Chapter Two the charges reviewed against her it's It's a lot like a a courtroom setting, and the these charges are being reviewed in our hearing and 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 rightly. When we're guilty, charges bring punishment right? Judgment is ultimately rendered in the case. The charges are reviewed. second, the condemnation is revealed. You know those um, those those things that that we tend to be most afraid of or or um, somebody looks at you funny. You know, you're out in public and somebody looks at you funny and and you're immediately think you know, I don't know, did I did I forget to put put on makeup? Do do I have something in my teeth? Right? Is my slip showing? Right? Or the the dream you have no, not the dream you have, the nightmare you have where you wake up and you're like, "Oh no, I went to work and I didn't put on clothes." Like I showed up at work with no clothes. Like that is for us. Okay. Rightly, sort of the height of that's the epitome of of embarrassment. That's the epitome of of we we feel shame and guilt. And you're you're, even, I mean, even in your sleep, you're grabbing the covers like, right? I got a cover up just in case this is real. That's notice the irony in verse three. There's this warning, she's guilty, lest I strip her naked, lest I expose her guilt and her shame for everyone to see. You do realize the irony that that would be shameful for a prostitute, right? It still works. I mean, nakedness throughout the Bible is a picture of of shame and guilt. It's almost always in almost every context. This is why it matters in Genesis 1. This is why Moses bothers to write, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Adam and Eve were both in the garden and they were naked and they weren't ashamed. Because Moses knows that anyone who reads that in his world doesn't understand that. And and here he's going to expose her guilt. He's going to expose her. Her shame for others to see. And so there's this picture in verse 3 strip her naked, make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land, kill her with thirst. Part of the punishment involves exposing and publicizing her guilt, her shame. Because of her rebellion. He'll, he'll expose her for others to see. In fact this comes up again. Verses 9-13. through 13. What the possessions that God has given. Will be taken away. She won't have wool and flax. To cover her nakedness. She won't have grain for food. She won't have wine in its Season. There's this picture then that she loses all of the things she needs to celebrate to cover herself to hide for that matter to prepare herself to go and visit her lovers. In fact, there's there's even punishment on the land, right? There's there's no grain. There's punishment on the land because of her guilt. There's this picture then that when when God's people pursue false gods, when we chase after idols, we will be found out. Our guilt will be discovered. Our, our guilt will be exposed. Israel, verse thirteen, is is punished for her feast days we with, with the Baal. she's celebrating she's feasting with these false gods she's offering uh, burnt offerings to them and she's punished for her disobedience there's this picture then Israel is guilty and the the charges brought against her lead to sin and death and so god courts Israel. God takes her to court and she is found guilty. This courtroom sort of picture. Charged with adultery. The, The condemnation revealed against her. But interestingly enough, it turns out that God then sort of Changes the scene, if you will. I I intentionally use double meaning in the sermon title, right? The courting of Israel. She's taken to court and tried for her guilt and her shame. But then suddenly, the prosecuting attorney switches to the other side of the room and sits at the defense attorney table. And the judge steps off the bench and sits next to the defense attorney, the new defense attorney, and becomes the accused himself. Because notice what happens. Instead of divorce papers, instead of, instead of saying, I'm through with you forever, instead of putting her away, God does the exact Opposite. The district attorney, the, or the prosecuting attorney, the judge, they trade places with the defense attorney and the accused. Because notice what happens beginning in verse 14. The charges reviewed, the condemnation revealed. Third, the covenant is renewed. Verse 14 is not what you expect to come after verses 1 to 13. Right? Where's the wrath? Where's the hammer? Where's the axe? Where's the sword? Where are the other nations to come and get rid of... Where's the flood? To destroy the earth. Where's the... I'm going to start over again. Where's the, the, the curse? The judgment? Where is it all? It should be right there in verse 14. Instead... I will allure her. Um you, you 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 know she's guilty, right? And not just a little guilty I mean You know she's guilty. Like th- this is bad. I will allure her. I'll take her to the wilderness. I'll speak tenderly to her. I will give her her vineyards. Like this this can't be right. I mean, verse 16 is a misprint, right? You you will call me my ex-husband, right? Surely somebody mistranslated the Hebrew. Like that's not... This can't be the right response. Yes, yeah, she's guilty. You do realize that the phrase... Undeserved grace is redundant. You you do realize you never need the word undeserved. Because if it was deserved, it wouldn't be grace. So you can draw, let me save you some breath. You never have to say the phrase undeserved grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. And that's exactly what's being poured out in the last half of chapter 2. And notice verse 15, something for which I'm sure we're all grateful. The Valley of Acor will be a door of hope. And I know you're all thinking, oh, phew, I was worried about the Valley of Acor. You know the Valley of Acor. You may not realize you know the Valley of Acor. There are a few of you in the room that should know, though it's been a year or two, if I remember right, Ladies. Back in Judges 6, I mean Joshua 6, you do remember Jericho, right? Hey, y'all go into the promised land and and you're going to go up against Jericho and you're going to destroy Jericho. The walls are going to fall down. Oh, and by the way, they're going to fall down because you're just going to scream a lot and blow some trumpets. All right, this is all you need and you're going to defeat Jericho. But here's the deal. Don't keep anything destroy it all. Next battle, Ai. Israel loses. Israel goes, Hey God, what gives? Do you remember why they lost at Ai? Because one guy, Achan, kept some stuff from Jericho. He kept some gold, he kept some silver, he buried it under his under his tent. And when he was discovered as the guilty party, he was taken outside the camp and killed, stoned. He and everything, everyone connected to him. Do you remember where he was stoned? You could probably guess now. The Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achor back in Joshua 6, 7 became the place where the death of one man meant God's judgment. God's hand of judgment would be stayed. That valley becomes a door of hope. Why? Because there's the death of one man who is going to stay the hand of God's wrath and judgment. Israel would have been destroyed. Had it not been for the death of Achan. And it was Achan's death. That that made the executioner if you will wait. Hosea anticipates a day. Sometime in the future when the valley of Achor. Won't simply be a place uh, where blood is shed. But it's a place where hope is offered. The death of Jesus is, as it were, in the valley of Acor. It's the place where God's judgment is his hand is stayed, his hand is is held back. Because his judgment and wrath is met in the blood of Jesus. This is encouragement for you and me as believers. Right? I mean, if you're trusting in Christ and him for your salvation he took the cup of god's judgment and drank every drop in it which means you by faith in him don't have to drink any you never have to taste that cup because he tasted it for you he was punished for our sin he suffered for our guilt he was rejected So that we might be received into the family of God. He was exposed because of our shame. He was condemned so that we might be set free. See God's promises. God's covenant with Israel has always been grounded in Israel's obedience. And yet Israel is perpetually disobedient. So why does God keep his covenant promises? If Israel is perpetually disobedient and this covenant depends on her faithfulness, then why is, does God continue to be faithful to his covenant promises? Well, it's because they were always grounded in someone who would come and obey for her. Someone who would, who would keep the commandments that Israel was required to keep the one who would come and, and keep the covenant stipulations that God God's people owed to him and he would do so in their place. God's people would never obey God's people would never complete their end of the covenant stipulations. For that matter, just think back to Genesis 17 and and God's. Covenant with Abraham, and he says, "Abraham, look, grab some animals, cut them in half, split the animals' parts halves apart, blood, stomach, animal pancreases. I don't know. Lined up in this path, this pathway of you chopping animals in half, and you pulling the whatever falls out is the the path made. The, The point was the practice in." Old, Old Testament covenant sort of language. We cut animals in half. We walk between the pieces. And what we're saying is, if I fail to keep my end of the bargain, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. You do remember, Abraham didn't pass through those pieces. God alone did. God promised to Abraham, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. I'm also going to keep your end of the bargain. There's a a picture here. Israel is disobedient. And yet God allures her and speaks tenderly to her and promises her restoration. Why? Not because of her obedience, but because of Jesus's. Jesus becomes the faithful one in place of Israel. The cross becomes the new valley of Achor. The place where the death of one man stayed the hand of judgment on all of God's people. The reason God continues to court Israel is because the son would be faithful for her. His obedience would stand for her disobedience. He would fulfill the stipulations in her place. And yet he would be sacrificed because of her guilt. The charges reviewed, the condemnation revealed, the covenant renewed. Notice just to sort of make this observation, the cosmos restored. Jesus's obedience doesn't simply save Israel. Because notice what happens. The heavens, the earth, verses 21 to 23. The earth will answer with grain, wine, oil. You see, here's the thing. Baal in the ancient Near East was the fertility god. If you wanted kids, if you wanted crops, if you wanted your vineyard to actually produce grapes so that you could have wine, if you wanted Your grain to actually produce grain so that you could have bread to eat. If you wanted to have children, you prayed to sacrifice to Baal. All along, Israel has been saying, Baal has been faithful to give me all of these things. Meanwhile, the one true God of heaven and earth is the only one who can give all of these things. And so Israel has been ascribing to Baal the work of God and him alone. That's her adultery. That's her disobedience. And as a result of God courting Israel, there's fertility. The land is even restored. Not only are people saved, but creation itself begins to operate Properly, Plants grow, crops produce fruit and grain. The earth even responds to the saving work of Christ. By the way, just to sort of remind you, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That word world is the word cosmos. It's bigger than just the world of the people. It's all of the created order. He so loved everything that he had made that he sent his only son. This is why you sing. We should probably be singing joy to the world after this. This is why you sing. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. You do realize that's bigger than just you and me. That's bigger than just you having a get out of hell free card. It's a restoration of the garden, the weeds, the the animosity between people and animals and all those sorts of things. That's why joy to the world is about the second coming of Christ. When all of those things are fulfilled and restored fully and finally and completely and not simply His birth. You see Israel's guilt. One thing God will not do Is share his glory with another. She's been thanking and glorifying Baal for the work that God and him alone, he alone could do. And he says, I will restore her, I will woo her, I will. save her, deliver her, and for that matter, reorient her so that she now realizes this is all for me. Not only is Israel restored, not only is Israel forgiven because of the death of Christ, because of the, the hand of judgment stayed by Christ's faithful obedience, but even creation itself is renewed, restored, in ultimately in the new creation because of the work of Christ. I hope you see the clear sort of application from Hosea 2. That God accomplishes our salvation. There's, there's nothing here that says Israel saved herself. There's nothing here that Israel goes, well, hold on a second, let me show you what I offer you. Wait, hold on a second, I've got this God, isn't this good enough for my deliverance? Isn't this good enough for my restoration? Now, the the picture in Hosea 2 is that God keeps the covenant requirements in Christ. He draws us to himself. He gives joy. He brings peace and reconciliation between us and him. He loves the undeserving. He fulfills the covenant of grace. God accomplishes our salvation in Christ, which means our salvation is all of grace. I perhaps told the story um, when I was in seminary at RTS in Charlotte. I worked in the bookstore um, on campus uh, some and uh, had this vivid memory of a guy coming in uh, a couple of times, the bookstore manager, Leo. Um, as this guy walked in, I I, I'm, I never knew who this guy was. And I always had this sense that um, that he wasn't exactly all there. But the dude was a voracious. I mean, he would walk out with a stack of books and come back two weeks later and he's read them all like he was that kind of a reader. I had this memory as this guy walked in. Leo goes, you got anything you can add yet? That was the question. To what? Like, there, did I miss a conversation? What if, like his response was, nope, still grace. That's our salvation. And when we start to claim credit for, look how great and wonderful I am, we're robbing God of his glory. When we start to pat ourselves on the back and say, look at the great things I bring to you, God, look at all these great and wonderful things that I, you know, God, you sure are lucky to have me on your team. We're robbing him of his glory. How is it that you and I are saved? It's all of his grace in Christ. His death stays God's hands of judgment, hand of judgment and holds out hope so that the Valley of Acor becomes a door of hope. Have you walked through that door? Is he your hope? Is he your your trust, your confidence for salvation. Are you looking to Christ and to him alone? And if you are, are you ascribing the glory to him alone? Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that there is salvation in Christ, that it is undeserved, that grace by definition uh, is undeserved. It's, it's, there's nothing that we can hold out and say, look at our obedience. Look at our faithfulness. Look at our goodness. Look at look at all these great and wonderful things we've done. Instead, we hold out our, our guilt, our shame, our sin. And we're grateful to Christ for satisfying divine justice, for reconciling us to God, for offering a hope for eternity. We pray that You would make us Grateful, thankful people who see that Christ alone is our deliverer, that Christ alone is our hope, that Christ alone is our salvation. We ask all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen.